Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from Genesis about the Tower of Babel civilization and the togetherness or oneness they had as a society. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org. Father, thank you so much that you are an instructing God. And Lord, because you're instructing, we are a learning people. And so we pray, Lord, open the eyes of our understanding that we might learn and see our Lord Jesus Christ this morning as we, as we study here in Genesis. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you follow along here in this uh, account in Genesis 11, verse 1 through 9. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime, had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build a city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. All right, now, in our last study, remember how we saw in Genesis 10, by the way, I wanted to say before I start here that I finally figured out this morning what would happen if someone didn't set their clocks right. Remember last week I was confused whether it would be late or early. I now know they would be late. So you, you, you are they which have set your clock. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Sorry. Okay, let's get back to where we were, where we should be. All right, so last time we were in Genesis 10. And what did we see there? We saw described the lineages of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That's what we saw. And from there, from here now, we're moving. This is, we're moving toward the calling of Abraham. That's where we're going. We're really headed. Obviously, we're in chapter 11. We're heading for chapter 12, but <laughs> great revelation. But it's moving toward the calling of Abraham. And what's happening here is that we're setting the backdrop. We already said last week how in Japheth, this is going to be the mission field for Abraham and his seed. But here we have a description of what the world was like as a backdrop when the call before Abraham was called. So the last verse in chapter 10 explains to us that the genealogies of chapter 10, it says that in chapter 10, verse 32, these are the families of the sons of Noah after their generations and their nations, and these were the nations that, that divided in the earth after the flood. See, that's what happened to all these people. But When we come to verse 1 here of chapter 11, that hasn't happened yet. In fact, we have a description here of the first civilization after the flood. And what we're going to be able to do as we study this chapter is to answer these questions. What were the people really like during that time? What were their interests? What were their goals? What were their aspirations in life? What did they want to accomplish? And And most importantly, what was the overall direction of these people? Where were they going? 
And so the first word in chapter 11 is an important word. It happens this word's all the time appearing. It's the word and. Because <laughs> and ties in this chapter. Chapter 10 is tied in. Now with chapter 11, because this is a description of, these, of, of more about these descendants of, the, of Noah and all the men. So that means that when we start this account here in chapter 11, we're talking about what happened to all these men. And, there's, and, and like I said, it starts off here, and they're all moving together, right? They have a wagon master, and he yells, wagons ho, and they all go forward. I don't know what happens. But anyway, the real important word to focus on in verse 1 is the word together, because that word is used twice in this verse, a very important word. All men were together as one. So there's a very strong echadness Remember the word echad? So there is, no, there is no word echadness. I just made that up, but it doesn't matter. But it's this, there's a strong togetherness, echadness. So the word echad means together as one. It means unity. That's the word that God used in the great Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4 to describe the Trinity. He said, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit were all echad. They were all together as one. And that was what Israel was to hear. And to understand, the Lord our gods, as it should be, is one. Okay, so verse 1 expresses this strong unity among people. So that's why it says here, they had an echad language and they had an echad speech. They had one and one. Literally, the whole earth, what it really says here, is that the whole earth was of one lip. That's what it reads. And one words. So that's the words that are used here. Okay, so now... This means that there was one name for everything. On the surface, this means there was one name for everything. One name for some idea, one name for, some, for objects. And that's what constituted a unity of language. And so when you came to church this morning, you came in a car. Not an automobile or an auto or a motor car. You came in a car, right? Anyway, you didn't call it a car. You called it a car. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the word lip, the word lip but though it goes farther than expressing just that, just words and pronunciation. It reaches, the word lip reaches to thought. It reaches to expression. The lip is the porthole through which words come out. And the Bible uses the word lip to describe who the person is. For example, it says in Psalm 12:3, it says that the Lord shall cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaketh proud things. So the lip there is expressing a flatterer, a person who has flattering lips. On the other hand, in Proverbs 12, 19, it says, the lip of truth shall be established forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. So the man of truth is called a person with the lip of truth. So when it says the lip of truth is established forever, that means that the person who reflects truth who is the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I am the truth. That person is going to have eternal life. It'll be established forever. It says, Moses, when God had ordered him to go speak to Pharaoh, he came back, Moses came back in one of his famous I can't do it routines. In Exodus 6.30, he said to the Lord, I am a man of uncircumcised lips. And how shall, I, how shall Pharaoh hearken unto me? So Moses in that place was like the prophet Isaiah 
who said, I am a man of unclean lips. And that was confessing his sin of, of having unclean or uncircumcised lips. I mean, he was an unclean, uncircumcised person. He viewed himself that way. He said he was a sinner, is what they were saying. And so when it says in verse 1, the whole earth was of one lip and of one word, that means that they were all united. They were all on board. And so now you notice in verse 2 where it says they journeyed. And it says that it came to pass as they journeyed from the east. That word journey literally means they pulled up the tent stakes. That's the same word that's used for the children of Israel when they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. That's the word. And it describes this kind of nomadic life that they had. These were the descendants of Noah. But there was something very different about these people compared to their forefather Noah. There was a certain restlessness to them. There was a certain uneasiness. There was an agitation inside them. There was no peace. There was no peace in them. And so they journeyed. They were moving. And that's a description. You could use that as a description. There was no peace. You know, God described this type of agitation in Isaiah 57, 20 through 21. You wanted to look at that. Isaiah 57, 20 through 21, where he describes this agitation inside. He says, the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. And then God concludes the whole matter by saying, there's no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. That's a description of these men here in Genesis 11. No peace No peace, and God says there's no peace to the wicked. Peace is not in the heart of the wicked. Now, when it says they're like the the waters that cast up mire and dirt, it means that there's confusion. There's no clear sight for the future. Heaven and an eternal life with God, that's just confusing. That's sort of like I hope so type of wish. But it says here that this is a description of the wicked, and so we ask the question, who's the wicked? Well, wicked is described, and you know this verse in Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10, when it says, the heart, the heart of man is deceitful. It doesn't say the heart of the wicked. It says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And then God asks the question, who can know it? Who can know it? And then he answers the question in the next verse when he says, I, the Lord, in other words, God knows it. I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. So that verse is describing our heart. It's describing the heart of man. It's describing all men. It's, it's my heart. It's your heart. It's our heart that is being described here. Desperately wicked. Not just wicked, but desperately wicked, hopelessly wicked, frantically wicked. Think of it that way. But before our hearts are described as desperately wicked... They're described as deceitful above all things. So the first description is deceitful above all things. And that kind of sets the stage for the second description of desperately wicked. So why does he have the description of the hearts in that order? Number one, deceitful above all things. Number two, desperately wicked. Why doesn't it start with number one, desperately wicked, and number two, deceitful above all things? Because the Bible is saying... The heart is deceitful of all things, and I'll prove it to you. (laughs) 
just watch this, he says. Our deceitful ball thinks are desperately wicked. And as soon as we hear that the hearts are desperately wicked, we say, oh, no, it's not. And then the Bible says, see, I told you, it's deceitful above all things. Anyway, Jeremiah 17 describes why the wicked cannot rest. It describes why there is this disturbance all the time inside. There's trouble to see. Because he can't find rest, man can't find rest. It's impossible for man to find rest. He can't find rest when he sleeps. He can't find rest when he goes on vacations. He can't find rest. You just came back from a cruise. <laughs> he can't find rest on a cruise. Uh, maybe you found rest, but you're not. Anyway, uh, he, he can't find rest in his pleasures and his hobbies. He can't find rest and peace in alcohol. He can't find rest in illegal drugs, heroin and cocaine. He can't find rest in, in legal drugs. He just can't find it. Who knew that in 1987, when the FDA gave approval for Prozac for a very small number of patients, who knew that a floodgate was going to be opened up so that today one in four people in the U.S. are on a uh, psychotropic drug? And next to cholesterol-lowering drugs... Antidepressants are the most commonly prescribed uh, drug here in the U.S. So the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest. There's, some, there's an unavoidable, when it says it cannot rest, it's talking about an unavoidable agitation, an impossibility of finding rest. Why? Why is the wicked like the troubled sea? Why can't it rest? Why is there no peace? Because it says in Proverbs 4.16, they sleep not, except they have done mischief. Their sleep is taken away unless they cause some to fall. So there's no peace because there's like an addiction. We're, we, we have an addiction to sin. That's our problem. But also, when it says that the Lord searches the heart in Jeremiah 17.10, and, and he tries to reign, and he says he searches it to give to every man according to his way. So what's that talking about? There's no peace and there's this terrible agitation because deep, deep down, everyone knows that judgment day is coming. Everybody knows that. And the Lord is searching the hearts and he's going to give to every man according to his way. So when the Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned, and then in Ezekiel 18.4 that the soul that sinneth it shall die, and then the, and then the, the worst is Hebrews 9.27 that says it's appointed unto men once to die and after that the judgment... That puts us all here on earth without the Lord Jesus Christ as living on death row. We're all on death row. Everyone knows that a crime deserves a punishment. So, so we're all on death row. It reminds me of um, Rabbi Yaakov, my friend. I told him that we're all in line to die. And he said, yes, Tom, but that's one line the Jews will not cut in front of. <laughs> Right? Aren't Irene, in Israel, when you were in line for the banks, <laughs> and you used to get so frustrated? Anyway, so they won't cut in front of that line. All right, so, <laughs> but God, wonderfully, God has made a way to get off death row and find peace. That's what the gospel's all about. It's all about that the crime was paid for in Isaiah 53, 5, that he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes were healed. That's a very interesting phrase. The chastisement of our peace. The chastisement for our peace. The punishment so that we could have peace was on him. And that's how we get peace, because all of the penalty fell on him, and therefore we then 
as it says in Romans 5, 1, have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because he, according to Colossians 1.20, made peace through the blood of his cross. Dad, today you spoke about how the Lord Jesus Christ made peace through the blood of his cross. Why is that important for our listeners? Well, it's very important for our listeners because, first of all, the Bible says that we do not have peace. It's important for our listeners because there is a need, a great need for peace. We have no peace. Isaiah 48, 22 says, There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. He says it again in Isaiah 57 with a little bit more background. It starts in verse 19. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him that is far off and to him that is near, saith the Lord, and I will heal him. So in other words, what what he's saying here in verse 19 is that it's the Lord Jesus Christ that creates this possibility for a person who is far off, in other words, the Gentiles, to say peace, peace to God. And also for a person who may be nearer to him, the Jewish people, but yet still separated, that that person is able to say, peace, peace, because he says here that he heals him. But it says, goes on in verse 20, for the person who does not come to the Lord Jesus Christ describes him in this way, but the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. In other words, the Lord, the Lord is saying here that, that the wicked are like the troubled sea. It doesn't have the ability to, to rest. It doesn't have the capacity to rest. There is no peace or rest in itself. That person can do yoga. That person can do meditation. That person can put on the, the softest, most soothing music. And God says, it's impossible because deep within there is no rest. There is no peace. So that's the great need. And it applies to us. Why? Because what we've just seen here is that it's the wicked that have no peace. And so someone may be listening and say, well, I don't, I'm not wicked. Oh, that's not what God says. God says that the heart of man, as he describes it in Jeremiah 17, 9, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? In other words, it's our heart that is deceitful, that fools ourselves. How is our heart deceitful? Because it looks on ourselves and it says, there's not really very much wrong with you. You're doing the best you can. You're trying to be a good and upright person. And, uh, you know, you've made some faults and some mistakes along the way, but you're not such a bad Joe. That's what our heart says to us. That's deceitful because our heart is not being truthful with us and giving the estimation that God gives of our heart, which is desperately wicked. In other words, and he says, who can know it? In other words, God's saying, you cannot even know how desperately wicked your heart is. That's what God says to us. But he goes on in that chapter in verse uh, in Jeremiah 17, it says, I, the Lord, do search the heart. So the only one who can really know the heart fully through and through is God Almighty. And his proclamation, his diagnosis is that the heart of every man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Now, there's no peace because our iniquities, as it says in Isaiah 59, too. Our iniquities have separated us between us and our God. Our sins have hid his face from us, so he will not hear. 
So we cannot have peace or make peace with God in ourselves. Even a person who says, well, I'm a very rich person. I've got a lot of money. I've got a lot of wealth. Certainly I can buy peace. Like someone said to me the other day, said, well, if you have sins, all you have to do is go to the synagogue. You pay the rabbi some money. He prays for you. Your sins are gone. That's not the way it works. In Psalm 49, 6 through 8, it says, they that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious and it ceases forever. God says, the soul is so precious, there's not all the wealth in the world that can redeem a soul by giving money to anyone for that matter. But God says that there is a way, and thank God for that. There is a way because the Lord Jesus Christ was the perfect man. He was the man who never sinned, never thought sin, never did sin. He was perfect. He never said a sinful thing. He was perfect. He was the Lamb of God without any blemish. He was the only one who could make peace for us. We so desperately needed him to come and make peace for us. And if he decided not to come, we would have no peace with God. There would be no hope of us ever being reconciled to God. That's why the words of Psalm 40, verse 7, are so dramatically important when he said, Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book, it's written of me. He said, I come. We sat on earth and only could beg him, please come. The father said, send him. That's what it says when it speaks about in the great verse of John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's the next verse that gives us insight into what that means he gave. It says in verse 17, For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. In other words, when God the Father gave, God the Father sent. And when God the Father sent, then God the Son in Psalm 40 verse 7 said, I come, lo, I come. We have no idea how desperately we needed him to come. And this was all his free will decision to come. He could have said, no, the cost is too great, but he didn't. Thank God. And that's why we worship him, because he made that decision. We worship him because he could have said no, but we worship him because he said yes. And that's Psalm 40, verse 7. Lo, I come. What did he do when he came? He made peace through the blood of his cross. This is really described for us in the last verse of Isaiah 53, verse 12. This part, he made peace through the blood of his cross, where it says, he hath poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. You see there, where did he pour out his soul unto death? At his cross. He poured out his soul. He poured out his his blood uh, for us at the cross. And when he did, and why did he do that? Because he was bearing the sin of many. And what was the result of it? He made intercession for the transgressors. In other words, he made peace through intercession, through the blood of his cross, by presenting himself to the Father. He said, Father, here is my blood, which I've shed for them. I want to make peace. I want there to be a peace. I want to make that peace between God and sinful man, between God and man. 
He made peace. This was something he made. He did. He created this. It wasn't there before, but he made this by his work on the cross. And therefore, therefore, the, the, as the verse says, he made peace through the blood of his cross. And as we just covered in Romans 5.1, when it says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's really the expansion of Isaiah 53, verse 5, where it says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Where was he wounded for our transgressions? Where was he bruised for our iniquities? At the cross. At the cross. Where did he take the punishment? so that we could have peace with God at the cross. And what is the result of his work at the cross? It says, he was wounded for our transgressions. That's at the cross. He was bruised for our iniquities. That's at the cross. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. That's at the cross. And with his stripes, we are healed. Healed of what? Healed of no peace with God. Chastisement of our peace was upon him. Therefore, after Isaiah 53, 5, we can proclaim we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ and praise to his name. Thank you for joining us today. As Tom Cantor was speaking about, there are many Jewish people out there today that don't have peace in their hearts and they need to be reached with the gospel. Do you have someone that is on your heart and on your mind that you've been praying for or wanting to reach with the gospel that's Jewish? We've got a free gift from Tom Cantor and Israel Restoration Ministries for lost Jewish people that we want to put into your hands to give to them or that we can send directly to them from Tom Cantor. To get a free copy of your gift, Tom Cantor's DVD and life story in a booklet, call us today at 1-800-247-3051. That's 1-800-247-3051. 1-800-247-3051. You can also fill out our online form at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Fill out the online form. We can send one to you or directly to them. Again, friendshipwithgod.org or 1-800-247-3051. Again, 1-800-247-3051. That's 1-800-247-3051. Friendshipwithgod.org. Thanks for listening.